on The Anthony Bradley Show, we will be discussing what I believe to be the solution to the Black Lives Matter protest, the solution to the racial tensions in our country that we have yet to heal. We will hear from Dr. Colleen Murphy, who teaches at the University of Illinois College of Law, and she has written an amazing book on transitional justice, which I believe is the best opportunity in this country for us to redress and heal our nation's racial wounds. I am excited for the opportunity for you to hear what Dr. Murphy has to say as we explore a pathway to solutions using an international platform that has helped so many other countries make amazing and substantial progress. I want to thank you in advance for joining us for what I believe could be a paradigm-shifting conversation in this country. Welcome to the Anthony Bradley Show. I am beyond thrilled to have what I believe to be an absolute genius on an issue that I recently discovered. We have with us today Professor Colleen Murphy to discuss transitional justice in her fantastic book, The Conceptual Foundations of Transitional Justice, published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, professor Colleen Murphy is, is a professor in the College of Law and the Departments of Philosophy and Political Science, University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She also directs the Women and Gender and Global Perspectives Programs and the Illinois International Programs and affiliate faculty of the Beckman Institute. She holds an MA and a PhD in philosophy from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and a Bachelor of Arts from the University of Notre Dame. She is an associate editor of the Journal of Ethics and Social Philosophy, the Journal of Human Development and Capabilities, and the Journal of Moral Philosophy. Professor Murray is the author of The Conceptual Foundations of Transitional Justice, which received the North American Society for Social Philosophy Book Award, and a Moral Theory of Political Reconciliation, also by Cambridge University Press. She is co-author of Engineering Ethics for a Globalized World, Risk Analysis of Natural Hazards, and Climate Change and Its Impacts, Risks and Inequalities. Colleen Murphy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Anthony. I really appreciate it. Fantastic. Again, again, I am, I am delighted about this conversation. I just want to tell you a quick story about how I stumbled into the topic of transitional justice. You've heard this story before, but for my listeners, I want to sort of frame this for me. I'm sitting at a study abroad program where I take students at the King's College here in New York. We, we're, we have a program in, in Belfast. We, we study the, uh, the history of the troubles and the reconciliation process that is, uh, uh, has been in place since the Good Friday Agreement in, in Northern Ireland. And I'm sitting in Northern Ireland and I'm listening to a presentation from a scholar from South Africa 
talking about transitional justice. And I'm sitting in the back with the students. And it's one of those moments, Professor Murphy, where you're, you're sort of on your phone, looking in your bag, not paying attention. And then the speaker starts to speak and you put everything down. And I'm sitting and I'm thinking, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, number one, what is this? Mm-hmm. And number two, why has America never done this? And I and that really sent me on a ferocious uh, search to understand a transitional justice. And I believe I I discovered your book in that search on Amazon, and then I got it and read it. And that was the beginning of a new passion of mine. So I am I am now a transitional justice junkie uh, because of this super fantastic book that I believe everybody should read two or three times at least. At least. That's outstanding. At least. So that's how I settled into this. So can you can you first of all, before we get to some of the questions, I'm curious. Mm-hmm. How did you get involved in, in transitional justice work? How did that happen? When you were little, were you thinking, when I grew up, I want to be, I want to be a transitional justice scholar? No, you know, it's funny because the, the connection um, that you have to Northern Ireland is shared. So I grew up in suburbs of Chicago in a predominantly Irish-American, Irish-Catholic community. So I knew all about the troubles. Um, And then I studied abroad in London when I was an undergrad at Notre Dame and took a course on the conflict in Northern Ireland and had two reactions. One was I had a very narrow understanding of a very complicated situation, right? The the sort of understanding that I was raised of what it would take to resolve the troubles was very simplistic. And that got me wondering, how do you actually manage to achieve a modicum of reconciliation in very complicated contexts? And then Northern Ireland, you know, the the civil rights movement there was predicated and modeled on the civil rights movement in the United States. And it helped me rethink fundamentally my own perception of where I was from, of the U.S., and what race relations look like here. So it was... um, And then, you know, thinking about, well, how can political philosophy help us think through, you know, where we find a shared basis for community amidst deep divisions, um, the ways in which incommensurable narratives of conflict impede prospects for reconciliation. So it was really um, my childhood and and interest in, in Northern Ireland. And when I was conducting my doctoral work, that's when the the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission was wrapping up its work. And there was a lot of comparative studies between South Africa and Northern Ireland. And so that's what led me to an interest in in South Africa, which again is is a really interesting place to think about um, comparatively with the U.S., yeah, I was I was recently actually on, on I was on a podcast in South Africa discussing the racial reconciliation uh, uh, conversations within the context of, of the church there. Absolutely fascinating. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually going to do a, a series on, on Northern Ireland because I, I go there every summer, except for this COVID summer, heartbroken. Right. It would have been my seventh summer in a row. 
it's taken me that long to get just a, a basic understanding of what's going on. I remember being in Derry uh, in the Civil Rights Museum uh, in Derry, and, and I'm walking around and I'm seeing all these Martin Luther King posters and all, we shall overcome with in the background. And as an African-American who, who was raised in the South, I'm from Atlanta, I was raised by the people who knew King. I'm from that community in Atlanta. My my brain was was short circuiting because I'm trying to figure out the connections. And then when I realized that in Northern Ireland, the Catholics basically adopted the U.S. civil rights movement and took it in and took it as their own, as a way to have these conversations and and to seek justice and reconciliation and peace. And I thought, man, this is really really fascinating stuff. So this has really opened up a brand new area for me. And I think I think that that in this country, we would be much better off, we'll get to this later, if we began to apply some of the principles of transitional justice to the conflicts that we have today in local communities and turmoil That's all right. over this country. Can you, can you give us just a sort of brief definition of what transitional justice is? Because it's, this will be a brand new phrase for people. They're used right. to restorative justice or retributive justice. Right. But transitional justice will be will be brand new to them. So how would you how would you tell your son's friends what <laughs> what transitional justice is? What do I work on? So uh, transitional justice, it's um, the 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 kind of distilling it to its simplest is um, a way of examining how to respond to human rights violations committed often on a very large scale. Um, that were characteristically committed or occurring during periods of repression and or conflict. Um, There's a lot of different forms these processes take. So some of them are familiar, right? Criminal trials. So you have the International Criminal Court. You can have ad hoc tribunals like the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia or the ICTR for Rwanda. Um, you have domestic trials too, truth commissions, um, which are official commissions established with a mandate of documenting a specified type of human rights abuse that was committed over a particular period of time. Amnesty, where you're removing prospects for criminal or civil liability, reparations programs, public apologies, memorials institutional reform whole, and that's not an exhaustive list, but just it's many different kinds of processes, um, all of which that are, uh, that the, the, the metaphor that's used for transitional justice is looking back, reaching forward. Mm-hmm. So you're looking back, dealing with and reckoning with past wrongs or present wrongs as a way of, as a community trying to move forward. That is something we do not do much in this country look back and move forward. We often simply want to move forward That's right. as if the back never happened. That's right. right. That tends to be how we, how we uh, uh, pursue these issues. Can you, can you give us, you know, I, for, for people who've studied these issues, uh, this will be again, something new. I'm wondering if you can help us understand where it came from. Is it, did it did it come out of out of the Rwanda incident or was it before that? Or was it 
apartheid that they got this launched or before that even? So, so there's disagreement about that. So the disagreement about where, where exactly or when exactly it began. You have some people who, who, some scholars who argue that it's, you can go all the way back to ancient Athens and find processes of transitional justice. Other people want to locate the beginnings of the sort of contemporary instantiation with the Nuremberg and Tokyo trials after World War II. Um, another common um, mark is um, the late 80s and early 90s where you saw a lot of transitions in South America from dictatorships or other forms of authoritarian regimes to democracy. South Africa is widely regarded as just a seminal case um, because of the way in which its Truth and Reconciliation Commission was distinctive from the commissions that had been happening before that in places like Chile and Argentina, much more public um, in its proceedings, in the report, in its naming of names in ways that hadn't happened before. Um, so South Africa definitely became a, a touchstone for discourse. Um, and, but there's been dozens of cases since. So it's really a global, global phenomenon, global practice. Um, Colombia right now is a very important case where a lot of conversation is, is centered around. But the precise origins, um, people disagree. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, uh, you, you mentioned Colombia. I think, I think there's also some good work in Guatemala uh, mm -hmm. recently as well. I've, I've spent lots of time down there as, as well. Uh, working, sort of, sort of being involved with with friends who were who sort of work in both law and government there on, on mm -hmm. some of the issues there. So it's all over the world. It seems that's right. That's yeah, right. and 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 it it seems that it it sort of has evolved, right? It sort of developed uh, not as a not as a maybe coherent movement, but as communities are trying to figure out ways to heal and and to be restored as they right the important word right transition mm -hmm. right they're transitioning out of conflict right transitioning out of a mess transitioning out of chaos right. and instituting a process of actually of actually transitioning that's right yeah and and there are in you know, within the context of the discourse about how how do you resolve how do you how do you move forward from past injustices? There, there's a a menu of approaches, mm -hmm. and it seems that a really popular one is is restorative justice. That's right. And you see this in the criminal justice space, where I also do some work. You most certainly see it, uh, for example, in in Rwanda. Mm -hmm. uh, cases where there was really, really uh, severe, severe dysfunctional, I'd say evil yeah. had, had occurred, really broken relationships there. So how do we, how do we restore those? So, so restorative justice is something that people are familiar with. And what I was really struck by when I entered into learning about transitional justice is the whole notion that restorative justice isn't enough. Yeah. Right? It won't really get us to where people believe it will get us. So can you help us with understanding the, the distinctions between restorative justice and transitional justice by, by first defining what, what restorative justice is and telling us how transitional justice might be different? 
That's great. Yeah. So, so there's one way in which restorative justice and transitional justice are similar, and that is with an emphasis on relationships and thinking about exactly as you were saying, how do we, in the face of crime or wrongdoing that has um, undeniably affected a number of relationships between victim and perpetrator, perpetrator and community, victim and community, how do we repair the ruptures? So the way I think of transitional justice and how restorative justice is often defined, um, that emphasis is shared on, on thinking about relationships and repair. So restorative justice um, thinks about how you go about repairing relationship, re relationships damaged um, in a particular way um, with an emphasis on, so it's kind of a loose collection of practices that, that share certain commitments. One being direct participation of offenders or perpetrators and victims in, in the process of dealing with wrongdoing, trying to facilitate an offender's coming to acknowledge the offense and responsibility for it, jointly identifying ways for harms to repair, be repaired. But all of these are oriented around facilitating, on the one hand, apology on the part of offenders and forgiveness on the part of victims. So there's a, a real commitment to forgiveness being really critical for uh, relational repair and reconciliation to be achieved. And, and that's where I, I in, in my thinking about transitional justice, depart from restorative justice. So I don't think um, transitional justice should include this emphasis on forgiveness on the part of victims of wrongdoings. Um, and it, it's because of how forgiveness is, is really problematic in transitional contexts. So, you know, I'm, I had 16 years of Catholic education. I know about forgiveness and reconciliation, right? You know, it's not that I'm, I'm opposed to forgiveness as such. But when we're trying to make sense of when does that call for forgiveness make sense and, and be really compelling, it's kind of in the context of relationships that are ongoing that are predicated on morally defensible terms, right? And in which a refusal to forgive, a refusal to um, acknowledge the humanity and the fallibility of someone you're in a relationship with strikes you as morally problematic. And you hope reciprocally that, that the person you're in a relationship would be willing to forgive you for your transitions. But if we shift to thinking about relationships that are not morally defensible, um, then the intuitive defensibility of forgiveness becomes a lot more fraught. So if you think about domestic violence, right, to, for, to urge forgiveness in the context of um, a relationship where there's um, abuse that's ongoing, right, that looks like encouraging an individual who's being abused to just capitulate and accept the treatment that they're being subjected to. And it can fail to take seriously the claim of um, the person who's being battered to better treatment, right? That this is not acceptable. And it's not really going to address forgiveness, right? A, a, a willingness to relinquish anger or resentment on the part of victims for having been wrong doesn't really address the fundamental problem, which is, again, sticking with the case of, of um, domestic violence, abusive treatment, right? By an abusive partner. And so I think in transitional contexts, what you're characteristically dealing with are relationships much more analogous to 
um, relationships of um, abuse, right, and where domestic violence is occurring, then you are in the context of, you know, um, relationships predicated on defensible terms, morally defensible and justificatory terms. And so, you know, when you prioritize forgiveness in the context of transitional justice, then you and, and see the success of processes as bound up with a willingness on the part of victims to let go of anger or overcome resentment, then you really risk, on the one hand, just failing to take seriously the wrongful treatment to which victims were subject and, and wronging them a second time with that refusal of acknowledgement. And you're incorrectly locating the problem, right? Victims have a right to be angry. That's a morally defensible response to injustice and wrongdoing. And so, and the fundamental problem in transitions, it's not anger or resentment per se, but the conditions that enable wrongdoing and the wrongdoing itself. And, and in all of, in, in, in this emphasis on forgiveness also ultimately places, and I think unfairly, the burden of relational repair on those who are angry at having been subjected to injustice or wrongdoing. So, you know, I don't have any objection to individual choices to forgive, even in transitional contexts. There can be a whole host of reasons why individuals have a reason and can be laudably, you know, done as a matter of individual choice forgiving. I just don't think that when we're talking about policies for transitional justice or the goals of communities, that that's where our emphasis should be. So that's where I see one fundamental difference between um, transitional justice and restorative justice. Absolutely. That, that seems to be somewhat consistent. I, I, I could make a case that it's actually consistent with the principle of subsidiarity uh, in Catholic social thought because compulsory forgiveness isn't virtuous. Right. Right. So I, I completely agree. I think that that forgiveness in these contexts, I would say, is necessary for real effective long term relational progress is going to have to be forgiveness. However, I don't believe that 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 public policy yep. is the mechanism or the means by which forgiveness is facilitated, because that's that's a moral action, mm -hmm. right? That sort of requires a certain commitment to, to particular virtues on both sides. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I'm, I'm also a bit uncomfortable with the idea that, that that level of forgiveness that's actually virtuous uh, can be facilitated outside of a context that's immersed in virtue, right? I, I, I'm not convinced that it's, it is the, the role of, of public policy to advance those sorts, of, those sorts of activities because it undermines the very civil society institutions that are actually good at that. Exactly right. Exactly right. right. Does that make sense? That makes complete sense, and I agree with that. Yep. Yeah. So I would rather the institutions that are good, are best equipped, that have historically shown expertise at reconciling on the, on the basis of confession and forgiveness for them to be activated in the process of transitional justice rather than, a, I, I would say, an institution for which 
that that's that sort of moral action is not necessarily constituent uh, to what that institution is. Yeah. Yeah. And so what I I'm, so how, how does a how does a, a a context know they need transitional justice? Right. I think one of the questions might be, well, my community has has had some conflict. I mean, it's the history of nations it's the history of, of, of this country as well. That every community in the in the world has always had conflicts between itself and others, and what you do quite uh, succinctly and clearly in the book is outline what you believe are so some of the preconditions that open the door for waving the flag to say, "Hey, your community, your country, your city mm-hmm. needs to invest in and transitional justice." So, what I'd like to do is sort of run down. Mm-hmm. Uh, each of those, and just kind of have you explain to us uh, what what some of those some of those conditions are. Uh, the first that you mention is pervasive uh, structural inequality. What is that? <laughs> it's a mouthful. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll yeah in illustrations I'll I'll talk um, I'll draw from from apartheid South Africa. Um, when I teach transitional justice, I teach it. Um, talking about apartheid South Africa and Jim Crow U.S. I think that it's a particular kind of case that registers, um, that is helpful for, think, for Americans thinking about the American context. And lots of other cases are different in, in, in important ways, but that's where I'll illustrate. So, so pervasive structural inequality, the, the structural is talking about institutions, right? Institutions like law and also social norms that have rules and um, that sort of lay out how citizens get to interact with one another and how citizens and officials um, interact as well. So laying out, you know, what are you permitted to do? What are you prohibited from doing? What are you required to do? And then importantly, there's also penalties, right? So if you don't do what what the rules say, what follows? And here you can have what follows formally and what is supposed to follow. And then that could be at variance with what actually follows. And you can also have informal penalties, social sanctions of different kinds that come in or informal uh, social responses. So, so things like, you know, if officials are elected by votes, who gets to vote? Um, sort of as laid down by law and as effectively able to in practice, right? Um, given additional restrictions or eligibility requirements and how those play out. Where you can live, what you can say and who you can criticize um, freely um, or with fear of certain penalties, what forms of employment you can seek and what compensation you can expect for the employment that you procure, whether you can own property and whether that property is effectively protected as yours. All of these things are shaped by rules and norms. And by penalties for, you know, so suppose someone wants to take your land. Will anything happen if they engage in that process? And, um, and there can be variation depending on the group that you're a part of, right, and what you can expect to occur. So transitional societies are shaped by um, deep inequality in the opportunities that are open to different groups of citizens to do and become things of value, being educated, being employed, being able to participate politically, being recognized as a member of one's community, being able to avoid poverty, 
um, and in the ability of different groups of citizens to shape institutional rules themselves, right? What are the rules of the game? Defining who gets to be employed, what education looks like, et cetera. So in South Africa, under apartheid, all of these differential restrictions were very explicit and predicated on racial classification, right? There was no pretense, unlike the US case, to separate but equal. It was separate and unequal, right? That just dispense with the pretense altogether. And so you had, you know, mobility of black South Africans reduced via pass laws, um, restrictions for black South Africans on accessing higher education and differential quality of education and investment in education along racial lines on the part of the government. Restrictions for voting being limited to white South Africans. Residential areas segregated explicitly on the basis of racial classification. So you can have fault lines that vary, that aren't necessarily fundamentally about race, but can, or can be about race combined with other identities, um, indigeneity or ethnicity or religion. Gender is always important, geography. So, you know, the, the ways in which inequality, what it looks like varies tremendously across transitional contexts. And it's also important to know, you know, in, in Jim Crow US and South Africa under apartheid, you know, inequality was explicit and intentional but you can have pervasive structural inequality that's just as deep, even if it's not as explicitly or intentionally pursued or is a product of intentional inequality being established at a previous time, right? Kind of the legacies of, of historic injustice that live on today when we look at patterns of racial segregation, for example, um, in housing that continue today, right? In, in the context of the United States as well as in South Africa. So it's kind of, you know, what are the rules of the game? What do, what do citizens have a feasible opportunity to achieve? And how inequality is a marker of those opportunities and ability to shape the rules? Great. The second one you mentioned is normalize and collective wrongdoing. What, what, do, you, what do you mean by that? Right. So I mean... So wrongdoing talks is referring to human rights violations. So violations of human rights that become normalized in a very descriptive sense. Um, and that just means that they become a basic fact of life around which members of a targeted group have to orient their conduct, right? So the anticipation of being arrested if you speak out, even if a speech is technically protected by law or the anticipation of being harmed or possibly killed if pulled over by the police, even if excessive force is technically illegal, right? That, that there are, um, when violations of human rights become normalized, this is something you have to take into account when deliberating about where you're gonna go, what you're gonna say, who you're gonna be with, what you're gonna do. And in the context of um, transitional justice, this is often um, group-based wrongdoing. So. Um, groups that are responsible for the violations that are targeted towards members of different groups. It could be political dissidents. It could be groups identified on the basis of race, so Black South Africans or Black men and women in the United States. Um, and it's also political in the sense of we're talking about violations of human rights that implicate the state, that implicate state actors. Not only or exclusively, you can have also groups contesting the state that are responsible for human rights violations as well. Um, and also that there are political reasons behind why these wrongs are happening. It's not just ordinary criminality. It's not about personal vendettas against someone else, but you're defending the state or you're defending national security or you're trying to overthrow what you view as an illegitimate government. So there's 
political reasons that are lying behind the sort of normalized wrongdoing that you see unfolding. And it was this wrongdoing that South Africa and its Truth and Reconciliation took up. So it looked at killing, abduction, torture, and severe ill treatment carried out by the security forces, um, as well as armed anti-apartheid groups um, in South Africa from a 30-year period. In the U.S., you can look at lynching. You can look at protests against police brutality, another form of this kind of wrongdoing in our own context. Fantastic. The, the, the third one you mentioned is serious existential uncertainty. Right. So if I was writing my book again, I'd have simpler terms. <laughs> but here we are. So, um, so what that is supposed to, to um, signal is, you know, there's, there's lots and lots of places historically in the present moment where the few, first two features are present. Where you've got structural inequality and normalized collective and political wrongdoing, but where transitional justice is just not on as a practical possibility, right? You've got either lots of repression and no hope of it ending, or so serious existential uncertainty kind of is a way of picking out moments for communities when the basic future or political trajectory of a community becomes suddenly in flux, right? And this could be because of a positive event. It could be because you've got a signing of a peace agreement. And so, you know, the trajectory was ongoing conflict for the past 50 years in Colombia. Then you have a, a peace agreement and suddenly, you know, the possibility of peace coming to the table or toppling of a dictator or multiracial elections ushering in a new period of, of democracy. But where this kind of source of disruption to the political trajectory of a community that's positive in many cases um, is, is fundamentally um, uncertain, right? A lot of transitions fail. Uh, a lot of times one form of repressive government is replaced with another, even when you have, you know, the toppling of a dictator or a, a wonderfully crafted peace agreement that doesn't stick. And so it, it sort of marks out it, these moments where there's, there's reasons for optimism and yet a lot of lack of clarity about whether the optimism will ultimately um, be realized and achieved. And so subjectively, it makes it really hard for citizens and observers to know, so what, what do we say? What is, what's the narrative we should tell about unfolding events, right? Is this really the beginning of a new era? of accountability or of peace or, or is this just, you know, we had a brief period and man, we're back to how things were before. Um, so that kind of that flux where, where suddenly you don't know exactly um, where things are heading. Um, and, and that could be for reasons that are really wonderful, but coupled with uncertainty about whether what's possible will actually stick. Yeah. You're, you're wondering if, in a post-conflict context, is it actually over? Like, is That's it right. really over? That's right, exactly. And, and what are the signals to give regular citizens confidence they can go about their lives without the, the post-traumatic, or rather actually the traumatic anxiety that was associated with the previous regime? When is it over? And in these transitional contexts all over the world, that's been a tough, tough issue. 
because of the inconsistency of particular communities and neighborhoods within that post-transitional context being resistant to transitioning. That's right, because, you know, people profit from conflict, right? It's not that there's only losers in all of these cases. And so there's folks who have a real stake in not seeing things change, right? Because they benefit from the status quo or the, the new order is threatening in different ways. And I think, you know, part of what transitional justice and in in, in, in the sort of starting point for it is one way of kind of reducing the uncertainty and building confidence in the um, durability of an agreement or a new, more just order is by demonstrating a willingness to separate what you're doing from what happened in the past, by condemning the kind of conduct that was warranted or permitted in the past, and just saying we're drawing a line and it will not be tolerated in the future. So kind of one of the impetuses for dealing with the past is that that's a way you kind of help build the confidence you need among citizens and folks that we really are willing to do things differently, right? That this is a new period where things will be better when people are looking for tea leaves, right? How do you know which way things are going to go? And this is one way you can, you know, provide those markers that things will be different. And that's exactly, I argue, what did not happen in the South on the both on the eve uh, and and on the implementation of desegregation. Exactly. Right? I mean, what, what did not happen in the late 1960s and the 70s, especially in the Southeast, was existential certainty. That's right. Right? Because you're right. People profited from the resistance. Entire brand new institutions of education were created. Day, uh, Christian day schools private schools, right? There was was created a desegregation resistance industrial complex right. in the South. And and the lingering about this uncertainty, I, I I personally believe in part, we'll talk about this later, but I personally believe that, that provides some context for the issues that we struggle with today. The fourth thing that you mentioned is fundamental uncertainty about authority. What do you what do you mean by that? So so you know trans so transitional justice processes are dealing with wrongdoing. And wrongdoing that often implicates the state, right? To different degrees and different contexts. And so you know the, the normal arguments you advance for why why is this the state's business? Why does this the state get to deal with crime? Those arguments can't be used here, right? It's not that the state is a neutral party to wrongdoing, which is often, you know, um, or the representative of values that are in need of vindication, which crime threatened or wrongdoing threatened, because often you're dealing with regimes whose values need to be overthrown, (laughs) right, are not in need of vindication, and the state's not a neutral party to wrongdoing. So this question of how do you establish the standing of um, and the authority of government to deal with wrongs that it's implicated with or in um, and and show that it is the party that properly is taking on these wrongs. And often you're dealing, again, going back to the point you were just making of uh, periods of contestation over, you know, and resistance to a new order. So you've got a lot of kind of competing standards for authority, 
operating at once, not fully entrenched endorsement of the new institutional order in cases of new you know, constitutional orders or new constitution, constitutional amendments or important pieces of legislation, changing the institutional structure. So you just got a lot of uncertainty um, about the authority of, of actors to take up past wrongs, to deal with past wrongs, to govern that aren't present um, always in other contexts. Absolutely. And, and the thread that I love about this, and this is just my bias. I'll just, I'll just, I'll just go ahead. Well, let, let me, let me say this first. First of all, your, your categories are, are consistent with you being a philosopher. So if it's, you know, if, if the words don't at least have maybe six or seven different, you know, syllables in them. That's I right. don't think a philosopher <laughs> doing, doing his or her work. Right. So right. if it's not, if it's not elongated and you have to, you know, really pick up a, a dictionary and or a thesaurus to read it, it's not philosophy. Right. So multi, you know, sort of multi syllabic words <laughs> is what you people do. That's, that's right. What, that's, that's what you all do. <laughs> Right. And if you're wondering, why is it at the dinner party that no one comes to talk to me? That's well, right. Because you you philosophers are hard to have a regular conversation with. And often the concepts are quite simple. So the words should be, too, in the labels. Yeah. The words are simple. But you all love making simple things into complex phrases and aphorisms. You, you guys love it. I go to your conferences irregularly just for that. That right. I, I just like, I'm just a regular guy. I went to Clemson, so I'm just a regular guy. Right, so I'm right. thinking I can't talk to these people. Uh, but but the, listen, this is this is what I love about about your approach, and what I love about these categories in terms of of laying out both the the analysis that helps a community see that it needs transitional justice and the means by which transitional justice happens. And that is the rule of law. It's the rule of law that helps us adjudicate both injustice and the pursuit of justice. And what I, what I really love about transitional justice, and you did such a great job of articulating the importance of having the rule of law be the referee. Mm -hmm. Having the rule of law essentially help us cast a vision for properly understanding the past and moving forward in the, in the, in the future. Is, is the rule of law consistently important in transitional justice or just in your work? So the rule of law is a running theme um, in a lot of the, the, scholarship of transitional justice. And just for, for listeners to, to clarify what I mean by the rule of law, because sometimes the rule of law can be invoked as sort of a, in sort of the law and order <laughs> sense of the term. And that's what I'm, that's not what I'm talking about. So when you're talking about the rule of law, you're talking about how legal rules come to have actual purchase on governing behavior. Because so often part of what enables injustice and, and violence and human rights violations is when law fails to protect. 
right? When the claims that citizens are at least on paper entitled to, or the rights that should be enjoyed, just have no bearing to what goes on in practice, right? Abdications of responsibility on the part of the state for ensuring the protections that are, should be enjoyed by all are actually enjoyed by all. Um, looking at non-contradiction in how, um, so this is following legal scholar Ron Fuller, but you know, the, the sort of commitments in South Africa to being um, a, a common law legal order just were fundamentally in tension with and contradicted the apartheid program itself. Our own founding, right? The commitments to liberty and equality for all, coupled with the founding of our country that had slavery at its core and then was followed by a period of Jim Crow. So, you know, so just to clarify that, that it's not just um, what we're talking about with the rule of law is how you get legal rules to actually govern conduct. And why that's valuable is because it opens up um, to critique the ways in which relationships are governed and structured, right? Because you don't have things happening in the shadows, right? Outside of what the law demands. Um, but you have law kind of shaping who gets to um, um, shaping what rights we have and those rights are effectively protected. So, so there's the rule of law and kind of reforming legal institutions, um, problems with the judiciary. These are common problems that occur, right? Ensuring impartial justice can be administered um, in the background of, of that not being the case historically. Um, one tension that comes up with the rule of law is that part of why the rule of law is valuable is because of the context of stability it's supposed to be giving, right? So if I, if I know the, the rules say, you know, I buy a house and it's mine and folks are going to, you know, respect that entitlement. And, and, and if I'm subject to, if my property is vandalized, I've got recourse, right? And protection so that doesn't occur. Um, I, can, I can form plans and reliable expectations in my interaction with others. Um, but the challenge or one complication with the rule of law and transitions is part of what you're often trying to do is transform the legal order itself. And so there's an inherent instability in that. And that creates complicated questions for, you know, just think about property claims in the context of historic theft, right? And so how do you deal, settle on the question of whose land is whose when you have land that was taken and families settled there and then their next generation is present. And so um, a lot of complicated questions about the rule of law pursued in these transitional moments when you're trying to not only um, have some semblance of stability, but also transform and change the legal order at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's one of the greatest gifts to Western society that that political philosophy has given us is is rule of law but it's also a challenge at i want to say getting the law right that yeah. that might be that might be uh too simplistic but making sure that the rule of law i would say is consistent with human dignity that's right that's right, right. and that's that's the issue is is how do we how do we use the rule of law in a way that actually uh, that that actually advances the dignity of the human person. Exactly right. Right, and, and that's how we know that that the law, that the rule of law, is 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 insidious and evil, is when it undermines human dignity. Exactly right. right. 
And there's a lot of debates in the, the jurisprudence class, the philosophy of law class I teach, you know, a lot of debates among legal scholars about the connection between human dignity and the rule of law requirements themselves, whether the, the rule of law will push you in the direction of respecting human dignity if you're called, forced to be transparent and open about what you're doing, or whether that's a more contingent connection. And you need additional protections to ensure that when you get it, the rule of law is pushing in that direction of recognition of the dignity of all and not just some. Yeah. So when, we, when we're talking about these transitions from past regimes of injustice to uh, restoration, mm-hmm. one of the conversation pieces is, is the role of distributive justice, right? Mm-hmm. We sort of can make things right by, by using these material means to accomplish reparation and restitution. And um, I'm, I'm wondering why that's not enough. I mean, why, can't, why, why do we need transitional justice when we have distributive justice? Right, right, good. So, so, um, so I think there's a couple of, of, of reasons why that won't be enough. So, so uh, philosophers often are, you know, a lot of debates among distributive justice is about, well, what is it, what is transition, what, what does distributive justice look like, right? So on what basis is it a certain kind of allocation of goods? Is it sort of respecting um, private transactions, right? Transfers of goods and there's no outcome you're looking for. Um, But I I think those kinds of conversations trying to settle on what does distributive justice look like, perfectly achieved, don't really matter in these contexts because choose your favorite measure things are distributively unjust, right? So it, it, you can get agreement on that. You might not get agreement on what perfect justice looks like, but the fact of injustice, um, you'll, get, you'll get there, um, you'll get agreement on that. The, the second kind of um, is that, that trying to get a fair allocation of goods in transitional contexts brings with it these complicated moral questions, one of which I was referring to below, that you don't get when you're trying to think about, you know, tax policy. What should distributive tax policy that's looking like in in the U.S. should be progressive or regressive? or You know, this question of dealing with historical theft, right? Where you've got, um, you know, restitution of goods. Is there a a time limit on that? Or how do you adjudicate claims of, of individuals who may not be directly have been directly responsible for theft of land but are benefiting from it right against um, those who are the descendants of of folks who are historically displaced and want to claim back on the land that was taken right these sort of complicated questions of injustice and um, the guidance I think that you need for thinking through how you navigate these questions is by thinking about well why are we dealing with past wrongs right what is the purpose what is the kind of transformation of relationships that we want to see achieved? And that's part of what transitional justice is thinking about. What is relationships, not just dealing with allocation of goods, but broader, the attitudes we take towards one another, the conditions that make trust possible or that explain why deep distrust persists, um, that allow for recognition of individuals as members of the community. It's you know, not just about the allocation of goods, though it's importantly about the allocation of goods too. Um, but I think that's why you need this transitional justice, because you, you only get an answer to these complicated questions when you're talking about distributions that are bound up with historical or in some cases ongoing injustice. 
by thinking about them from the perspective that transitional justice offers, not just, you know, distributive justice. That's what you do when you're doing taxes, right? That's your tax policy. That's important, right? Tax policy matters. But other questions come up too that are just not the same as those um, that are being settled with questions of what our tax policy will look like. Yeah, so so the advantage, I would argue, of transitional justice is it's doing, it wants to do more. Yeah, exactly. Right? It wants to do more than just resolve the immediate past context of injustice, right? It actually wants to, and you talk about this in your book, right? sort of do social transformation. We're trying to really transform, renew, restore society in general. That's right. Right? So we're not just trying to fix the bad thing that happened. We're maybe, maybe I'm, I'm saying, maybe this is, this is going too far. We want to s- establish new conditions so that that bad thing doesn't happen again. Exactly right. Non-recurrence. So right, never again. Yeah. sort of the mantra of that's exactly right. We're, we're doing more than just fixing in a way corrective justice would say, for example, you know, you inflicted a wrongful loss. I fix it. Now we're good. Right. Transitional justice goes beyond that. And I think one other um, additional factor is that with distributive justice, you can have kind of um, distributive injustice that isn't necessarily a product of, of wrongdoing. Right that arises sort of um, because if you're John Rawls, there's sort of brute luck that plays a role. And whether your talents are valued, for example, and you can get a job on the basis of what you're good at or what your compensation is. You know, you can have problems of just that you want to rectify that aren't bound up with wrongdoing, but with transitional justice, you have to acknowledge wrongdoing, right? This is not just accidental. It's not just incidental. It's not just bad luck. But there was wrongdoing and injustice, and you need to acknowledge that fact and then think about, you know, what do we do in order to um, offer redress and ideally transform where we're at? Yeah, and, and part, of, part of naming that wrongdoing actually helps us know exactly what we need to address. Exactly. And it really gives us very clear specificity. And this is why I love transitional justice as well. It gives us very clear, direct, specific things to address mm-hmm. in ways that say, you know, social justice as a broad category doesn't really tell you much about what specifically needs to be addressed. And what I like about transitional justice is it, it forces us to think about particular wrongdoings and the outcomes of, of, of those. And, and so you, you mentioned in the, in the book that there's this, this desire to transform. What, what sorts of things, you mentioned a few of them already, but what, what other things are, are sought to be transformed post or maybe, maybe during the transition uh, process and, and thereafter? Yeah, so there's two kind of, in, when I, um, I argue in my work, there's kind of two moral values that are guiding efforts of transformation. And one is um, respect for agency, respect for individuals as agents who are properly kind of should be in a position where they can be in charge of the course of their own life and, you know, be held to account for the choices we make for good or for evil, right? Um, and also reciprocity. 
this idea that, that the legitimacy with which I can make demands on you depends in part on my willingness to recognize your ability to make demands on me and fulfill those demands and expectations. So kind of this, to, to be able to relate in those ways as equals, equal agents and equal claimants um, and bearers of responsibilities as well as rights. So uh, along with what we were talking about earlier, kind of establishing the rule of law in the sense of a framework of rule governed conduct um, that actually manages to, to govern conduct um, and, and able, is able to effectively protect and recognize the rights of, of all citizens um, that are part of that order. Another part is sort of thinking about the conditions that make it reasonable for us to trust one another. Mm. For us, you know, one of the conditions, Northern Ireland, as well as in the United States, that, you know, the, the conditions that make default distrust and deep distrust where your presumption is ill will on the part of fellow citizens um, or desire to harm you rather than wanting um, what is good for you and and a certain kind of um, capability of inflicting harm as well. Um, Establishing conditions where you, it it could be possible for there to be a default of thin um, but reasonable trust. Right. Where I don't have to when I'm engaging with my fellow citizens or even government officials presume ill will. Or worry about the presence of ill will or worry about absence of competence to know what's required to respect my rights um, and adhere to whatever responsibilities, either as citizens or government officials that a particular individual has. So kind of that being in a position where that becomes possible um, against, again, a background of deep and historical distrust. And then also kind of the establishing a threshold level of genuine opportunities for all citizens to be recognized as members of the political community, right? As citizens, not some as more citizens than others, right? As equal citizens, to be able to participate in political institutions and economic institutions to not suffer from forms of alienation where there's no role or place for you in the political or economic or social order. And importantly, and I think this is critical in so many contexts, to avoid poverty, that that ensure that all have a genuine opportunity for that to be possible. Um, And so that's the kind of relational transformation um, that I have in mind, how I I fill out kind of what it looks like. Yeah, I I really love that that poverty piece because, you know, it is it is. I would say one of the greatest protections against against injustice is political and economic thriving and liberty, right? Exactly right. Right? I mean, exactly you know, right. we're we're both in the privileged class now and we have yeah. access and you because you just because you work at a law school, uh, right, we have access to to legal representation if things go south, right? Exactly right. Right? Exactly right. And and poor people especially the truly disadvantaged, as William Jules Wilson would, would, would describe, they are at the mercy of mercy when it comes to being protected from the abuse of power. Exactly right. And, and, and historically, we have, we have seen that. And putting people in positions where they can climb out and sort of sustain themselves out of poverty is one of the, the best protections. And so I, I would argue that economic opportunity – economic thriving, 
expansions of op- opportunity marketplaces is also one of the necessary components of imagining a new future for communities that have been impacted by by injustice. Now I'm thinking right. these are all things, right? Now, I want yeah. people to think about this as, as we listen, right? These are all things that did not happen in the South, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's sort of the, you know, you can go back and replay this entire episode and think, did that happen in Mississippi in 1970? And it'll be nope, nope, yep. nope, nope, nope. Uh, and so, you know, I'm not surprised we're we're in that we're in the mess that 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 we're in. One of the one of the things that I I argue is that that transitional justice includes multiple sort of community stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not sort of it's just that not just the state. I think I think the civil society institutions in a community can play can play some role. You recently wrote an article about the role of religion and and transitional justice, and I'm I'm wondering if you could just help us think through particularly in light of your discussion about forgiveness, what, what, what role has religion played in some communities or, or, what, or what could it play? No, that's great. So it, it was really, it was, so I was really grateful for the opportunity to write that paper as part of a kind of, it was a part of a symposium on religion and democracy. So kind of, so, you know, there's, there's no kind of simple or single role that religion has played either kind of pre-transition during conflict and periods of repression, um, as well as kind of during transitional justice processes themselves. So you have, you know, religion as sort of a site of conflict, um, a marker of, um, of, of those who are targeted for repression um, or subject to inequality, structural inequality, uh, or a basis of privilege, you know, so it kind of plays out in all different ways. Um, in some cases, you know, conflict that's nominally about religion is not about theological differences, um, but kind of religion is bound up with certain ethnic identity or national identity. Or, but in other contexts, theology matters. Um, so, in the context of South Africa, you know, theology was used by the Afrikaans Reformed Church to defend apartheid, and other churches like the South African Council of Churches were were vigorously protesting it. Um, and similarly, when you look at the Catholic Church in either bolstering repressive regimes like Pinochet or involved in the contestation of injustice on the part of government. So it's, you know, it's for even the same religion, it's complicated. Um, it's not always heroes. It's not always, you know, <laughs> um, bad story too. Um, so, so what you do find is um, in transitional justice processes, religious figures who are often at the formal level, First, looking at kind of state-sponsored processes, quite prominent. Um, you know, Archbishop Desmond Tutu leading the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, the Catholic Church in Chile instrumental in investigating abuses under Pinochet. Um, so, so you have um, religious figures who are often quite prominent in the processes for dealing with past wrongs that are established. And I think partly because um, the f- particular figures who take up these roles, like Tutu, are themselves moral exemplars, right? Having played a key role in contesting injustice, being at the lead of pushing for an end to injustice, and so have a certain kind of moral authority because of that fact, as well as, um, you know, the kind of broader authority within communities that religious institutions in so many places continue to have, um, uh, so I think 
that's kind of, you know, in terms of religion, it's quite prominent and, and, um, and religious actors are quite prominent. I think um, in terms of the substantive role to play, the substantive objectives to be advocating for on the part of religious institutions, you know, here the story is going to be, again, complicated. Right. So at the, while at the, at, 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 I think it's very important that the sort of state sponsored or government sponsored policy processes that are established, um, like we were saying earlier, not have forgiveness be part of their mandate. Right. Or be part of what those processes are, are working towards. That's not to say that you can't have religious institutions on the ground as part of civil society advocating for the religious objectives that are very important as sort of theological commitments where forgiveness can be one of them. So I think, you know, the, 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 um, you can have civil society organizations that can and should play really critical active roles within their communities, trying to facilitate cross community reconciliation on the terms that they're structured around, right. And explicitly theologically justified and defended, um, um, terms and 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 that's completely compatible with then thinking about when it comes to the government and what the government is setting up and establishing and how it's trying to structure relationships politically kind of distancing itself from some of the things that religious organizations might be pushing for forgiveness being one of them also something that did not happen in the US south <laughs> it's just extraordinary all the things that would have been helpful uh, didn't didn't really didn't we didn't really activate the churches well the churches in, in some parts of the south are actually part of the the resistant core that's right uh, so you would you would not have had them participate in the least because they were the ones pushing against desegregation in the first place and and what I love about broadening out the community uh, stakeholders is that it really puts the burden on people to do what uh, David Smith argues, exercise transitive reciprocity, where you're actually investing in making each other better. That's right. Uh, not, simply, not simply thinking about, about yourself, but you're trying to sort of pay things forward by caring about your neighbor. And yeah. so a transitive reciprocity has an opportunity when multiple institutions in civil society are able to participate in these, in these transitions. And when and, you, I was just going to say real quickly, and one of the, the things you can also do in thinking about religious institutions and organizations is call them to account for the role played in historic injustice, Right. That the, the sort of justification and defenses of structural inequality, right? Insofar as religious institutions played a deep role in providing those justifications, accountability also falls to them, right? Um, you know, the, the Catholic Church is going through its own process of accountability for sex abuse scandals, right? Rightfully so, come call it me held to account for its wrongdoing that it tried to um, hide and otherwise avoid acknowledging, um, but not only in-house, but also in contributing to the community that you're a part of. The role played by religious institutions is, you know, part of what needs to be talked about. Absolutely. And, and this is, this is, was, this was eye-opening for me when I began to think about the comparisons between the U.S. 
and the Troubles in Northern Ireland, right, where you had deeply embedded religious institutions participating in the conflict for completely non-theological reasons that <laughs> date back to 1690, by the way. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> for the record. And yeah. If this was about theology, you know, this is sort of this sort of you know, rehashing their Reformation. That's different, that's right. <laughs> right? Right. But this had nothing to do with that. This had much more to do with like Oliver Cromwell and that's and right. and those sorts of of uh, sort of placements of Protestants in in, in Catholic uh, Northern Ireland at at the time and and the conflicts there. But to sort of think about the role that religious institutions in the on the one hand behind the scenes, right, turn a blind eye to some things, That's right, right? And, on, and, and on, the, on the other hand, sort of gave a blessing for people to go out in the name of defending, defending religion as an ethnic identity mm-hmm. to, to pursue uh, actions that actually made their communities worse off. That's right. right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And so... You know, I you know you, you talked about South Africa in in terms of it being probably the best model of of transitional justice on the ground, working, being tried. Are there other other places that are important? And then, or or maybe you could just add, maybe you could just just tell us if it worked in South Africa. So I think the kind of if it worked. Um, is always going to be a qualified answer. So I think one of the things that, that um, you know, and this is something that transitional justice as a body of scholarship and practice has been more honest about over time is sort of the, the demands of transformation are overwhelming, right? Especially in context of deeply rooted, um, institutionalized and entrenched injustice, right? It, it, it's... So, you know, the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission was the road to reconciliation. It wasn't going to be achieved through it, right? That, that would, that's just an impossibility. So it's always in, in thinking about or analyzing what's been done, you know, on the one hand, looking at were there things that were achieved that were valuable in helping transform relationships and also, you know, being aware of um, the limits, of, so the South African TRC, as much as I was lauding it, and I think it did have a very important impact in a, in a particular way, I'll, I'll say in a moment, um, you know, it's been subject to lots and lots of critique. Um, and critique in terms of its functioning from the perspective of gender, critiques in terms of how its mandate was structured. So, you know, I think one thing that I think is um, true of what the South African Truth and Reconciliation did um, is, you know, as I said earlier, providing this model for a public, national, official reckoning with wrongdoing, right? You know, this was on the TV. It was part of the daily, you know, you turn on your news and it's the daily news and then hearings from the TRC. And I think that what it made impossible to maintain was a certain kind of denial among white South Africans that, you know, apartheid was a good idea, just badly implemented in practice, right? You know, we could have done it better, had it, it, just contingency. No, like it just showed that you, you had, violence was front and central 
to the maintaining of the apartheid or order. And so, and also, you know, it wasn't just a few bad apples who committed atrocities, right? It was normal individuals who found themselves in a context in which atrocities were normalized. And so, you know, I think that that's all of value. At the same time, you can say, look, and this was Mahmoud Mandani's critique, it, it sort of um, effectively gave that the agents of apartheid impunity and didn't recognize the victims of apartheid, which were black South Africans targeted as a group because, you know, it didn't take on apartheid itself. It took on the extraordinary violence of apartheid that was used in its contestation or implementation of it. And so, you know, the past laws, the forced removals, the, um, all of the implementation of apartheid was treated as non-political. And so, and, and the economic consequences, the economic legacy and, and inequality that is still an issue today, which is why there's all the discussion about changing the constitution to allow for um, uh, land restitution without compensation. So, you know, I think, I think um, you know, it's a mistake to just write off the TRC as having done nothing. It's a mistake to think that problems were solved, right? You had this reckoning and then, and I think that's true in every case. You know, you can look at Colombia, I think is just an extraordinary example of a really intentionally crafted, comprehensive set of processes. It's also an example of how politics are so, and divisions that get so deeply entrenched, make even the best of crafted um, set of processes, not a given they'll actually succeed in what they set out to do. So, you know, it's, it's, this is a generational project. And, and so kind of, if you keep that in mind, then you can talk about ways in which different processes worked or were limited, um, in, in, in better terms, right. Or in more honest ways. Yeah. So it's not as if we'll have a transitional justice process, That'll last, you know, 12 months, 18 months, and then it'll be great. That's right. Right. You're, you're, you're saying, if I understand correctly, correctly, this is long-term work, right? And I believe that's exactly right. One of the things I help people understand, particularly in the U.S. context, which we'll talk about in just a moment, yeah. is it, it took us 400 years to get to this mess. We are exactly. not going to fix this in six months or six years, right? This will be the work of this generation and two or three generations afterwards, I think, who were committed to this, this sort of fixing some of these issues um, as, we, as, we, as we move forward. And, you know, I, I want to I be careful before we talk about the, the U.S. context. You know, I don't, I don't want people to think that if we just do transitional justice, everything will be perfect. Because there are some limitations to it, and scholars are very honest. This is what I also like. People are very honest about the fact that this is not necessarily the end-all, be-all to making it perfectly reconciled and, and sort of perfectly solved. What are what are a couple of limitations that people need to be aware of when, so when it I, comes to traditional justice? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think one of them is just what you were talking about now. Calibrate your expectations. I mean, what transitional justice processes can do is to set the stage for that multi-generational project by demonstrating why this is needed, right? In the face of denial about 
you know, why is racism still a problem or how much does it exist in the U.S. or how can we trace the present moment to the past, kind of overcoming obstacles to the real conversation of, okay, now we need to change things here and transform our relationships. And there's lots of debates to be had about how best to do that. But transitional justice, so kind of calibrating your expectations, what it can do is sort of set the foundation for the long-term work of transformation that's needed, both by getting a kind of collective and communal acknowledgement and commitment that transformation is needed, as well as, and this goes back to a point you were mentioning earlier, a sort of accurate sense of what's needed by, based on a looking at what happened in the past and how that has shaped and led to our present moment, right? And the conditions that enable wrongdoing to still occur. So, um, you know, th that's an important one. I think the, the practice and scholarship of transitional justice has recognized that um, there's been struggles to deal with more structural injustice rather than kind of spectacular violence. I mean, even looking at the TRC with the killing and the abduction, all of which are horrific, right, and, and merit um, attention and a response. But the, the, the shift to thinking about economic rights violations, um, more structural and entrenched sources of injustice, that's something that the, the scholarship and practice has tried to think about how to do better at um, dealing with. Um, you know, one of the differences um, dealing with historical justice as opposed to more recent episodes. So even, you know, the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission looked at the, the 30 years, um, uh, last roughly 30 years of apartheid, not looking at colonial histories and how that shaped and led up to apartheid. And so kind of historical and enduring injustices, how to think about um, dealing with those kinds of questions as opposed to the more immediate um, spectacular forms of, 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 of violence. Um, and I think a, a third way is in thinking about really problematizing um, who's setting the agenda for what transitional justice looks like in a particular case. So, you know, there's been a lot of critique of the sort of experts of transitional justice. There's a lot of NGOs coming in and saying, here's what you do, right? Here's what you need to, and, and, and kind of robbing a, a, a community of its agency to make those choices for themselves. And then within communities, thinking about how do you avoid duplicating, duplicating patterns of marginalization, right? So and, and, and there's a lot of emphasis on the inclusion of women, um, historically marginalized communities, you know, to, to, so kind of thinking about who is it actually defining the transitional justice agenda and who should be, right? Who, who has the authority and standing to be thinking about, okay, we got lots of things we could be taking up in a process. So what should the Truth and Reconciliation Commission look at? Um, what should its mandate be? What should reparations look like? How do we prioritize wh you know, which wrongs? Um, so those are some of the limitations. And you're right, the, the scholarship, you know, it's now matured enough in the practice to a point where you get all the critiques. <laughs> and there's lots of them, right? Um, and, and so, and, and a lot of them that are spot on. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I, I would argue we need to, we need to engage the discourse and work those things out because some of those limitations may be 
maybe local and geographical rather than limitation, maybe rather than than uh, limitations just in principle. That's right. For example, there may be some things that might work in Rwanda that won't work in Belfast, that might, might work in Guatemala, that won't work in Colombia. And so I think, again, I think transitional justice principally needs to be indigenous. That's right. And highly contextualized to the particular injustices uh, of, of that particular context. As we, as we wrap up, I want to kind of shift and talk about this country just right. for briefly before yep. I let you go. Yep. Because my deep frustration, and I'm sitting, go back to Belfast, I'm sitting in this lecture listening to the scholar talk about apartheid in South Africa and the TRC and transitional justice. And my question is, why didn't this happen in the U.S.? And and is this the reason that the Black Lives Matter movement is alive and well today? My conjecture is that had we done transitional justice in the late 60s through the 70s, we wouldn't be in the spot that we're in today. That's just my speculation. And I'm wondering really two questions. One, why do you think it didn't happen in the in the, the late sixties and seventies? And then secondly, how do you think it can help us today? Yeah. No, I think I will just to start, I think my reading of the Black Lives Matter movement is as a as calling for transitional justice, the whole platform. And that's what it's demanding. And I think you're right that 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 you know the Civil Rights Act was a forward-looking document, right? From this moment forward, we won't allow things that were permitted in the past, but not really looking at what enabled wrongdoing the past to occur or the legacies of the past. And and I think, you know, I think that Americans um, have we have there there are certain kind of obstacles. Um, that we need to just, that we're seeing right now to the possibility of transitional justice that we need to just overcome. And one is this sense that sort of acknowledging the past or acknowledging wrongdoing or imperfection is incompatible with endorsing our deepest ideals and commitments. And I think that this, that somehow if you, if you, if you start talking about what we did in the past that was unjust, that you're kind of calling into question the American ideal. And I think that's just a mistake. I think, you know, what, what dealing with the past honestly allows us to do is to be able to put ourselves in a position where we can achieve our ideals, right? You don't have to check out the ideals of equality and justice for all. We just haven't had that, right? So how can we live better up with our ideals? And I think we're really deprived that kind of move the sort of equating of being anti-American if you're talking about the past or we want patriotic education. And so that can include any kind of reference to our, our imperfection or injustice. You know, we're depriving ourselves collectively of an opportunity to do better and be better if we foreclose critique of our past and present. And I think, you know, at the individual level, this sort of um, thought that you have to, that, that, being committed to an ideal is is incompatible with critique. And at the individual level, we know that's just not true, right? How do you become a better swimmer? How do you become a better, I'm raising my sons, right? You kind of set out some goals and then you're honest 
in looking at your progress towards them. And insofar as you're not meeting them, you look at why and you try and change. And so I think that's one thing that's sort of distinctly American. We're the best and we have these, the best ideals. And so we can't be imperfect. Yeah, we can. And so let, let's, you know, and then I think that there is just a, a, a real insufficient official acknowledgement that the past doesn't go away just because we don't want to talk about it. Right. And it's not going to continue or fail to continue to shape our present just because we want to deny it or ignore it. And so, you know, there will never be progress on racial reconciliation in the United States if we don't honestly and officially deal with our past. It's just not going to happen. And, and sort of, you know, thinking that we can just have it all go away. That's why transitional justice started because countries realize, no, it doesn't. The past is still present and it, it continues to be invidiously present until you deal with legacies of injustice, until you deal with how those legacies are shaping ongoing injustice and in the present. And I think the last thing is, again, this is the American sort of uh, parochialism, which is, um, you know, not being aware at what's happening globally. You have this whole global movement, dozens of countries with lots of experience and wisdom that we can draw on. We're not leading in this front, right? This is a front where we have to really learn from the experiences of countries around the world. And just not, I mean, when I, when I teach transitional justice, almost to a student, they haven't heard of the term before. And so it's like, wow, this is interesting. And, you know, I, I talk about apartheid South Africa and Jim Crow U.S. and my white students don't know anything about Jim Crow. My black students, by and large, didn't know the parallels between apartheid. And, you know, so just so I think that's I, I think that's some of the reasons for um, why we've seen lack of progress um, in the way that you see in other places. But I think in our, you know, in our moment, again, we're seeing demands for transitional justice, the, an end to racial injustice, an end to police brutality. The conditions that generate transitional justice are present here. The structural inequality, the normalized wrongdoing, that's what the protests are all about. Our uncertainty, I mean, the discourse around the future of the United States that you see right now is unheard. I mean, it's, it's not what I've seen in my lifetime. Uh, in, in terms of a kind of uncertainty. And I think it would be really helpful to think about our present moment from the perspective of transitional justice because it allows us to see connections between, you know, calls for police reform and accountability, calls for, you know, Barbara Lee's, Representative Barbara Lee's call for a Truth and Racial Healing and Transformation Commission, the debates over uh, Confederate memorials, and their removal calls for reparations. You know, it's not just accidental that you see all of this happening at once. It's pushing us to deal with our past so we can transform our present and have a better future. And so it gives us a framework for having a conversation. You know, what does transformation look like here? What, what, what should transitional justice processes take up? And again, you know, it, it, it gives us a, 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 a sort of font of collective wisdom with Northern Ireland, looking at the efforts of police reform there, right? Fraught in a lot, not identical, but a lot of the same ways that police interaction and, and institutionalized policing is here, you know? So what worked, what didn't, what could we draw on? What could we do better? Um, empirical studies of if you have a truth commission and it's coupled with other processes, what impact does it have? And, um, 
So I, I think there's a lot of rich resources that transitional justice has for us in the U.S. And I think, you know, the, the, the um, strength of the Black Lives Movement and the protests, that are, they're not going to go away. You know, I think that, um, and so despite all of the, the, the pushback that's predictable and that you see in transitional contexts too, um, so yeah, I, I think it's, it's a, a, a rich source of wealth and wisdom and uh, lessons learned and, you know, we don't need to reduplicate problems or limitations that were discovered elsewhere. And then, as you were saying earlier, but make it our own with, you know, dealing with our own history. Um, so. Yeah, we are, we are late to the game. We are. We are late to the game, America, on transitional justice. And the irony is that we have sent Americans to other countries to help facilitate, <laughs> I want to say for the record, transitional justice in other places. That's right. Right? The U.S. Justice Department, right, sent Gary Haugen to Rwanda. That's right. Right? We send people to facilitate transitional justice, but we have yet to do it in our own country. And Professor Murphy, you are exactly right. We will never, ever move toward effective, I'd say, true reconciliation on issues of race until we as a country, until we as states, until we as local communities where there has been real uh, uh, sort of racial injustice in the past, began to adopt the principles of transitional justice. I don't think there's any other way. And so what I want people to do, I want them to buy Colleen Murphy's book. I want them to read it. And then I want them to send a copy to every single city council man in their city or town. And then I want them to have their city council send it to the state legislature. And then I want to have it sent to the governor's office. And then we need to have a copy of this placed on the desk of every single member of Congress. And then we need to put it in the White House. And then we need to get the Supreme Court ready for a slew of cases that will come as a result of us nationally and locally addressing this. Colleen Murphy, this is genius work. Thank you. I just want to say for the record, I think this is the country's way forward and I am delighted, excited that you have interest in this. I am excited that you even uh, produced the book. And I am, I am thrilled about this opportunity uh, to present it to people. I, my hope, dream, uh, great, great vision is that, is that this country will take, will take transitional justice very seriously. And I think Colleen Murphy is the one. Uh, to lead the way, maybe maybe we should say Colleen Murphy 2024. I don't know. Just, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'll just I'll just say that I'll just put put that out there. Colleen Murphy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate Anthony and the, the overly generous words. Mm-hmm.